0: kick this thing off yeah. Can I kick it off yeah. One, two, three, four. what's going on everybody it's mr lutz back again with another episode of world history class with mr lutz and so for today's first episode of period five we're gonna zoom our focus in on the age of revolutions and the age of nationalism And I'm kind of excited for this episode in particular because I plan on ditching two of our old features, um, the zooming in feature and the explainer feature. And instead, we're going to opt for two new segments, one called Complicating the Narrative, in which we'll take a look at kind of a different historical interpretation of a particular event or maybe just a different lens examining the same event. And then the other feature is going to be called Document in Focus, where we'll take a primary document relevant to the topic at hand, try to break it down a little bit, maybe source it and kind of discuss its significance to the larger picture of what we're talking about. So a lot to talk about in this episode, so we probably should get started right away. So before we get into the revolutions themselves, I think it's really important to first kind of lay the groundwork, and we'll do that by talking about the Enlightenment. And one of the last major developments that we left off with in Western Europe was the emergence of the Scientific Revolution. And if you remember, that had argued that the natural world could be understood by constructing knowledge through logic and reason that would be developed through inquiry and observation. And the works of Isaac Newton had become so influential by the 17th century that philosophers start to apply these scientific approaches to matters beyond the natural world and into the more human realm. So this development marks the beginning of what's known as the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. So early on in this intellectual development, it's going to be two English philosophers, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, who set the groundwork for the conflict over government that was to ensue for over a century to follow. Hobbes believed mankind was born into a world that was harsh, and human instinct was to be cruel in his mind. Therefore he argued it was necessary for humans to be governed by an absolute ruler who could keep these nasty tendencies of their subjects in check. This unspoken agreement between rulers and the ruled is known as the social contract, and varying versions of this theory would emerge over time. So, for instance, John Locke believed in a different version of the social contract. He argued, all people were born with natural rights that were not handed to them from any particular source. Among these rights, they included the rights to life, liberty, and property. So, according to Locke, he believed it was the duty of government to secure these natural rights for all. If that government was unable to secure the natural rights of the people, then the people had the right to reject that government. Clearly the stage was set not only for an intellectual debate over the nature of government, but also would would be soon a physical battle that would emerge in several nations throughout the world. So Enlightenment thought is going to expand as the movement gained steam, particularly in France during the 18th century. These new thinkers, known as the philosophes, had begun to construct new theories about religion, politics, economics, human morality, among other topics. One of the most popular thinkers of this time included Baron de Montesquieu, who had praised the British government for their ability to maintain checks and balances on government power through the establishment of an executive, legislative, and judicial branch. His work, known as The Spirit of the Laws, helped to influence the Founding Fathers of America and influenced the structure of its federal government. Another Enlightenment philosopher who expanded on the social contract theory, as we mentioned with Hobbes and Locke, is going to be John-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau argued that the best governments are those that make decisions based on the interest of the quote-unquote general will. Basically, this means the majority would decide upon what actions would be taken by their government. This advocates for what would be considered a direct democracy and emphasizes that the interests of the minority are secondary to the interests of the majority. And finally, as a result of his travels to England, not to mention his sharp observational wit, Voltaire is able to critique the two major institutions of France at his time, the monarchy and the church. And he advocated for a more tolerant society that would be defined by religious freedom and constitutional monarchy. Now, of course, before I move on, there are lots more Enlightenment thinkers and philosophes to potentially discuss, but your books kind of do a good job of covering those remaining thinkers, so rather than dwell on their Enlightenment philosophies for too much longer, let's just get right into the revolutions and see these ideas, um, let's say, attempt to be put into action. So the British colonists living in America are going to be the first to kick off our study of the Age of Revolutions during this time. These colonists had felt a sense of both loyalty to and relative independence from the British government across the Atlantic Ocean. However, things began to change with the fighting of the Seven Years War, or known in North America as the French and Indian War. Now this war, won by Great Britain over France, did result in British supremacy over world trade, and it would ultimately serve to the benefit of its American colonies. But the war was extremely costly, and it led to increased government involvement in colonial affairs and rising taxes in the Americas. So these taxes, known as the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Townshend Act, and the Tea Act, are going to be seen as increasingly repressive, especially to American colonists, who resented this lack of representation in Parliament. By 1775, a war had broken out between Britain and its American colonies, and one year later, the Continental Congress of America would publish its Declaration of Independence. This new declaration not only justified the American decision to break free from British rule, but it did so by justifying its actions with Enlightenment reasoning asserting almost word for word from John Locke that its citizens are guaranteed rights such as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and at present moment the British government was not securing these rights for its American citizens, therefore it's within the rights of the Americans to reject their government. And by 1783, the Americans, primarily with French military and financial backing, had emerged victorious in the revolutionary war and fully established their independence from Great Britain. Its new government would go on to embrace the individual rights prized by Voltaire, the separation of governmental powers as advocated for by Montesquieu, and the idea of popular sovereignty from Rousseau. However, the revolution in America was not a complete implementation of Enlightenment values, as those who gained rights were men of property, while slavery was maintained as an economic and social institution, and women were denied political rights as well. Following the American Revolution, the French attempted an even more radical revolution intending to make the dreams of enlightenment philosophy a reality. The origins of this revolution exist within the ancient social class system of France known as the estate system, which featured the first estate, defined by the members of the clergy, the second estate, comprising of the nobility, and the third estate, defined by all others, including the peasantry, urban workers, the bourgeoisie, or the middle class. This system had emerged as problematic because although feudalism had disintegrated in the centuries before the 18th, the estate system remained, and this meant that the third estate not only lacked the political representation it desired, but it also meant they were shouldered with 100% of the tax burden for all of French society. French involvement in the American Revolution had really sent their debt soaring, and the peasantry had been especially squeezed on money because so much of it was being spent increasingly on bread due to raising prices thanks to crop shortages, especially in 1783 and 1788. When the king could not find an agreeable solution to address France's debt, he's forced to call a meeting of the Estates General, where all three of the estates would be tasked with finding a solution to the problem. It was at the meeting of the Estates General where the third estate proposed a new constitution and the distribution of the tax burden to be shared by all three estates. This was rejected by the other two estates, of course, which led to the members of the third breaking from the estates general to form their own representative body called the National Assembly. This new, now called National Constituent Assembly, pledged themselves to rectifying the injustices suffered by the majority of French citizens, and the French citizens took matters into their own hands as well. Fearing the king's troops were moving into Paris to destroy any gains made by the revolutionaries, Parisian commoners attacked the Bastille prison to free the handful of prisoners there and to secure the gunpowder being stored there to defend themselves against the king's troops. The mob even hacked off the head of the prison's leadership, and the king, for all intents and purposes, had lost control of Paris. Several weeks later, the National Constituent Assembly penned the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen, which reflected the philosophes embodied by the Enlightenment and called for the security of man's natural rights, equality for all men, and fair treatment according to the law. So from here, the revolution began to take a more extreme turn. Originally, Louis had remained as king, but now operated as a constitutional monarch, forced to share power with the National Constituent Assembly, soon enough after louis and his family unsuccessfully attempted to flee france from neighboring austria the government changed into a republic and the king was stripped of all power and eventually executed by 1793. meanwhile the catholic church was being stripped of its power which caused counter-revolutionary movements in france set about trying to undo the gains of the revolution all the while Austria and Prussia decide to invade France in order to prevent any success with the revolution from influencing their neighbors, and they also executed Queen Marie Antoinette. So fearing that all the revolution could be lost from either enemies inside or outside of France, the revolutionary government entertained more extreme options to ensure the preservation of the Republic. The Committee of Public Safety and its leader, Maximilien Robespierre, took the step of launching what is known as the Reign of Terror in order to accomplish their revolutionary goals. The committee worked to further eliminate the influence of Christianity by altering France's calendar, removing saints' names from streets in Paris, and establishing the cult of the Supreme Being, meant to provide people with a moral compass, without the hierarchy and tradition of the old Catholic institutions of France. When all was said and done, the Reign of Terror was responsible for executing 40,000 and imprisoning approximately 300,000 people who it deemed to be the enemies of the revolution. One of those who was beheaded by the guillotine was feminist Olympe de Gouges, who was responsible for writing the rights of women in response to the Declaration of the Rights of Man. We will take a closer look at her in the new Document in Focus feature later on in the episode. The only thing that's gonna stop the Committee of Public Safety and Robespierre and the Reign of Terror is when Robespierre's finally reigned in by a more moderate faction of revolutionaries and he himself will be guillotined. These moderates are gonna stumble along for the next few years until they're replaced by Napoleon Bonaparte. So Napoleon had worked his way up the ranks of the French military thanks above all else to his abilities as a commander and not due to something like his family's social status so that by the age of 24, he'd become a general of the army. He had experienced success in fighting the Austrians and Italians, and some limited success, though ultimate defeat, in his campaigns in Egypt. By 1799, France's domestic political situation had grown dire as the moderates had struggled to put France on solid footing after the troubles of the Reign of Terror. Napoleon led a coup d'etat, or an overthrow, of the government and established the consulate and made himself the first consul of France. His greatest success, in my opinion, is going to be his ability to spread the ideals of the Enlightenment and French Revolution beyond the borders of France as he established his empire. He made peace with the Catholic Church, but also expanded religious tolerance throughout Europe. His Napoleonic Code, or the Civil Code, that he established set forth into law that all males were equal People were to be awarded positions based upon their ability, not their social status. They secured private property, but they also reaffirmed the patriarchal nature of especially the French home. So all of this, except for the emphasis, of course, on patriarchy, probably makes Napoleon seem like the man who was right for the job of actually enforcing the goals of the revolution. But that wouldn't be fair to his legacy. For all his positive contributions, Napoleon restricted the press arrested political opponents, used propaganda to support his agenda, and worked to limit the implementation of representative government. Now, his empire was able to conquer Spain, Portugal, Italy, the Netherlands. He chipped away at Austria and Prussia, but he's unsuccessful at defeating England, despite his plan to cut them off from trade, and Russia, in which he was taught one of the most obvious lessons of all of world history, Don't invade Russia in the winter, because it's cold. Brilliant. Ultimately, Napoleon is going to be defeated by a coalition army, and he would be replaced by the brother of King Louis XVI as the ruler of France, and conservatism, favoring traditional sources of authority, would return thanks to the Congress of Vienna. So did the French Revolution really mean that nothing changed in the end? Of course not. So, news of the French Revolution and the Declaration of the Rights of Man had made their way to the richest colonial possession in the whole world, Saint-Domingue, which is known today as Haiti, and it began to lead to serious questions emerging in this French colony. Would the slaves there receive the rights promised in the Declaration? Would France no longer tolerate the institution of slavery any longer? Would free blacks have more power as landholders than the Petit Blancs or the less wealthy whites? All of these questions led to increased tensions between the white property owners, the Petit Blancs, and the slaves of Saint-Domingue. The situation in Haiti would reach crisis levels when a slave revolt broke out in 1791. So what began as the slave revolt turned into a conflict that was going to involve not only the French military, but also the Spanish and the British forces as well. Slaves initially turned on their masters and began a campaign of mass slaughter and destruction of both coffee and sugar plantations, which are the true money makers in Saint-Domingue. Eventually, there's going to be a leader to emerge in Toussaint-L'Ouverture a man who was born into a life of slavery but had been emancipated and earned an education. Initially, when this revolt had begun, Toussaint had first went to the home of the family that had enslaved him to ensure their security. However, he soon emerged as an educated and talented general who was able to manipulate the tensions between the French, the Spanish, and the British to his favor in order to help secure independence for Haiti by 1804. However, Toussaint would not live to see this dream become a reality. Slaves had been emancipated by the French in 1794, and from that point on, the Haitians had identified themselves as part of France. When Napoleon came to power, though, he decided that more revenue was needed for the French in order to help restore their colonial supremacy over the British. And to do this, Napoleon thought it was necessary to reinstate slavery in Saint-Domingue. The Haitians, of course, fought against this, L'Ouverture would be arrested and imprisoned during this time, and he would ultimately die as a prisoner in France. However, Haiti became the first country to successfully mount a slave revolt that would ultimately establish not only the emancipation of its slaves, but also its independence from its parent country. So, Creole elites in Latin America are following along with these developments in Haiti, and they're a bit cautious because it's ultimately the slaves who are leading this rebellion. Now, they are not only influenced by Haiti, but they're also influenced by what's going on in America and what's going on in France, and they're going to start to agitate for independence from both Spain and Portugal, because, if you recall, the peninsulares, those native European-born whites, had been traditionally granted the privileged positions in government, and colonial mercantilist policies ensured that manufacturing and trade would remain underdeveloped in the colonies as they were under the control of the European-based authorities. This scenario left the Creole class, and the mestizos for that matter, in an economically and politically disadvantaged position. So by the early 19th century, Napoleon's conquests had brought his armies into the Iberian Peninsula. With the armies of Spain and Portugal busy fighting off the French forces, the time was now right for revolutionary movements to strike in Latin America. So we'll start our focus with Mexico, where native and mestizo peasants, led by a priest named Father Hidalgo, revolted against colonial authorities. Though the Creole class of Mexico was initially supportive of this revolt, they turned their loyalties back to the Spanish once their property became endangered by this independence movement. Father Hidalgo was eventually captured and executed, and within a decade of his death, a Creole military officer named Augustin de Iturbide would gain the support of both the army and the Catholic Church in Mexico and declare Mexico to be independent of Spanish control. Soon enough, after a brief stint as a poor administrator, Iturbide would be overthrown by another Creole named Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And Mexico then became a republic, which granted rights to the people, but did not really pay much attention to the societal inequalities regarding things like land ownership and educational opportunities. So this begins the struggle between the liberal and the conservative factions in Mexico. Liberals tended to reflect the values and the beliefs held by the American and French revolutionaries, so calling for things like a secular society that looks after the interests of the middle classes, But the conservatives are going to desire to maintain the authority of traditional institutions such as the Caldeos, who are the military dictators, the Catholic Church, and the military. So the liberals of Mexico would be given their opportunity to govern Mexico after Mexico's defeat in the Mexican-American War. Led by Benito Juarez, Mexico wrote a new constitution that curbed the powers of the church and the military, and hoped to pave the way for the expansion of a Mexican landowning middle class. This 1857 constitution also gave all males the right to vote, which, of course, you'll see soon enough will be known as universal male suffrage. The conservatives had an ally, on the other hand, in Napoleon III of France. Yeah, there's a Napoleon III later on, who invades Mexico on the grounds of Mexican failure to repay their debts to France. The French are able to overthrow the liberal Juarez and install Archduke Maximilian of Austria as the new emperor of Mexico. But this does not last long, and after a few years, by 1867, the Mexicans had reclaimed their governments and they had ordered Maximilian to be shot. Eventually, Porfirio Diaz would come to take control of the government and managed to hold onto power for decades, and we'll follow up more on him in Period 6. Now, further south, Simone Bolivar would come to lead the independence movement and work to establish the Republic of Gran Colombia in northern South America. So Bolivar, who is a Creole born from parents who had been part of the Spanish aristocracy, is very familiar with Enlightenment rhetoric. And he's going to use it to unify across social divides in South America. By 1811, he began to lead the revolution against the Spanish in that region. He was temporarily forced into exile, where he penned his famous Jamaica letter, something we'll cover in class. But by 1819, he's able to defeat the Spanish and establish his Republic of Gran Colombia, for whom he served as president until 1830. Unable to realize his goal of basically creating a union of states in South America, he died with his dreams not realized and threatened by a rise of Caldeos throughout the continent, generally governed in anti-democratic ways. Finally, a path of non-violent revolution took place in Brazil. The Portuguese royalty had fled the Iberian Peninsula for Brazil in 1807 upon the invasion of Napoleon's forces there. Once King John VI of Portugal felt the time was right to return to Portugal in 1821, he left his son, Dom Pedro, in charge of Brazil. Brazilian Creoles took this opportunity to declare their independence from Portugal, and they would be supported by Dom Pedro, who became the Emperor of Brazil. In this new government, the Creoles would also see their power in Brazilian society remain. Thus concludes what I felt like was one massive run on sentence about all the different major revolutionary movements throughout the Atlantic world at this time. I highly recommend that you pause that throughout. Go back, listen to it at parts, because there's a lot going on there. But the last thing to mention here in this section is that there's some new ideologies emerging at this time, including conservatism, liberalism, and nationalism. So I want you to be really clear on them before we move along. The first two that we need to understand are conservatism and liberalism. Before we discuss them, though, it's important for you to understand what we mean when we call these things ideologies. To put it briefly, an ideology is a way of seeing and understanding the world, and in that sight, you have an ideal for how society should operate. So conservatism argues that if changes to occur in society, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, it should be gradual and it should be natural. So there are thinkers like a guy named Edmund Burke, for instance, who views the American Revolution as appropriate, because in his mind... The British had broken away from the way they had governed their American colonies, so the Americans are fighting a war to return to the way they had been before the outrageous taxation without representation issue surfaced. On the other hand, to guys like Burke, the French Revolution is seen as radical and an extreme departure from tradition, and therefore it's dangerous to be avoided. So liberalism, or what we'll call classical liberalism, believes in the preservation of natural rights above all else. This means that governmental responsibility is to ensure life, liberty, and property. They're going to be advocates of laissez-faire economics, which called for minimal government interference in the economy. They call for voting rights, typically for landowning males, and a typically weaker government than what had traditionally been seen in Europe. So finally we'll talk about nationalism here for a minute. So when the French were forced to defend their revolutionary gains from these foreign armies who had sought the destruction of their revolutionary movement, they called for what was called the levy en masse or mass conscription of males to fight for their armies. Suddenly the people of France began to define themselves as a nation of people with a history, culture, language and values that stood in contrast to their neighbors. With this development, our modern sense of nationalism was born. Soon enough, movements arose in Europe to unify people based upon this socially constructed concept of national identity, meaning it's not a real, tangible thing, but rather an idea. I'd argue that nationalism is one of, if not the most powerful forces in our modern world today, and it's finally present in our class, and it's not going away anytime soon. So individuals who identified as being Italian and German are going to use nationalist sentiments to unite people into modern nation states. These territories had not been unified for a vast majority of time that we've studied in our class. And as of the past few units, they've been comprised of these small kingdoms and principalities that could differ in terms of their religion, their language, or their cultural tradition. So leaders in Italy such as Count Camillo di Cavour and Giuseppe Garibaldi are going to use national identity like for instance their common sense of pride in their Roman imperial past to drive Austrian forces out of what became a unified Italy under the only native Italian ruler you know and one fact that always blows my mind regarding nationalism is that only 3% of those who would call themselves Italian could actually speak the language of what we now call Italian upon their unification in 1861, which kind of speaks to the range of different dialects and versions of languages that exist in these Italian states prior to unification. Meanwhile, in Germany, the Prussian prime minister Otto von Bismarck practiced what was called realpolitik, meaning the politics of reality, as opposed to being some type of idealist and he uses realpolitik to basically start three wars between 1864 and 1870 against Denmark, against Austria, and France in order to give the German people an identity through the sharing of a common enemy in each of these three wars. By 1871, Kaiser Wilhelm I of Prussia became the emperor of the Second Reich, meaning German Empire, with the First Reich being the Holy Roman Empire. The modern world as we now know it Is beginning to quickly take shape here. So make sure you take notice. All right, now that we've got kind of the the basic setup going, let's go ahead and complicate the narrative here. I want to introduce this new section of the podcast because I feel that understanding history. And the fact that it's a complicated thing is one of the most important concepts you can learn in my classroom. We frequently opt for things in our world, such as the easy explanation or, or the, the quick hit story, you know, the ones that give you the nice long list, like a BuzzFeed story comes to mind, for instance, or this idea of a simple good versus evil narrative because it makes things seemingly clear and more obvious, and it can potentially be reduced down to memorization, which ultimately is good for classes where rote memorization of facts is valued above all else. But appreciating the complexity of history is essential to understanding the complexity of our world and all of the different voices that exist within it. So our focus today is going to be the African influences shaping the Haitian revolution. So this revolution often gets reduced to being influenced by the values of the Enlightenment and the events of the American Revolution and the publishing of the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. And that's kind of sort of how I almost presented it to you earlier on. And although all of these things are influential in their relation to the events of the Haitian Revolution, we've also got to understand the role played by African attitudes and values. So for this, we're going to turn to the work of Chris Davis and his article, Before They Were Haitians, Examining Evidence for Congolese Influence on the Haitian Revolution, as well as John K. Thornton and his article, I Am a Subject of the King of Congo. So um, Davis kind of talks about this idea that many slaves, specifically in Saint-Domingue, who later become the soldiers of the revolution, initially came from West Central Africa, particularly the Kingdom of Congo. And had been former soldiers, well versed in the use of firearms and military tactics. Now, these soldiers, when they were in Congo, were originally fighting in these civil wars that had been going on from 1722 to 1760. And they related to issues of succession, problems dealing with banditry, and rivalries between the villages. And this is going to lead to an increase of slaves being sold because these slaves had come into the hands of the traders as prisoners of war in the civil wars. And the nature of the political disagreements in the kingdom of Congo at this time is over the nature of government. They kind of all agree that there's a value to having a monarch, but the debate basically is over the concept of should we have an absolute monarch or should we have a limited monarchy? Now, Davis argues the major reason that Haiti reflects influences of the Congo more than France is that with the French Revolution, There are certain factions within France that are calling for an end to the monarchy, period. While in the Congo, they're calling for maybe an absolute monarchy or restrictions upon the monarchy. But no one is talking about doing away with the monarchy. Now, Africans in Haiti, the slaves, had wanted to destroy the old labor systems, but they want to establish some sort of a new limited kingship, And thus, that's where the African influence, according to Davis, is evident. He also kind of goes in and looks at linguistic studies during this time and confirms the most common spoken language among the so-called slave uh, nations, quote-unquote, which is kind of like a local organizing unit within Haitian slave society. The language spoken among these nations are typically of Congolese origin. So he's basically implying that If they're going to have this shared language, there's going to be a shared value system there and we can't discredit that the influences of the Kingdom of Congo aren't going to be present in the minds of those revolutionary actors in Saint-Domingue. And John K. Thornton furthers this and he kind of talks about the idea of the political ideologies of Congo making their way to Saint-Domingue. He goes on to discuss these nations and he says that these nations elected their kings and queens and they managed the affairs, of uh, the local affairs that is, of the slaves in secret. And if you look at the battles fought by the, the slaves in, in revolt against the French, the military tactics that are being employed by the slave soldiers, these smaller units, are really similar to those that were being used in the Congo Civil Wars. Um, these rebel units, just like Davis suggested, spoke primarily African languages, And on the other hand, the larger Creole military units are using more European-based tactics. And Thornton also goes on to emphasize that we see this West Central African tendency to support and rally around a strong ruler with leaders of the military posing themselves as strongmen similar to those that would be found in West Central Africa during this time. And the fact that when areas are starting to receive some political autonomy as the tide is swinging in the favor of the slaves... They're electing, uh, for brief periods of time, kings and queens, and they're having them govern. So we're really seeing this African tradition kind of as a constant throughout the Haitian Revolution. So what we see here is a more nuanced picture that brings African influences into a conflict that was driven in large part by people derived from the African continent. Makes sense, right? The first document to be discussed in our new document in focus section is going to be the Declaration of the Rights of Woman and of the Female Citizen. It was written by Olympe de Gouges in 1791. So to contextualize this document, we're talking about two years after the publication of the Declaration of the Rights of Man by the National Constituent Assembly. And this appropriately frames de Gouges' work as a critique of the gender discrimination that defines the revolutionary movement in France during this time. So de Gouges' declaration is basically a 17-article, almost line-by-line critique of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. And she begins her critique of the patriarchy by stating, quote, quote, Man, are you capable of being just? It is a woman who poses the question. You will not deprive her of that right at least. Tell me, what gives you sovereign empire to oppress my sex? Your strength? Your talents? Observe the creator in his wisdom. Survey in all her grandeur that nature with whom you seem to want to be in harmony and give me, if you dare, an example of this tyrannical empire. Go back to animals, consult the elements, study plants. Finally, glance at all the modifications of organic matter and surrender to the evidence when I offer you the means. Search, probe, and distinguish. If you can, the sexes in the administration of nature, everywhere you will find them mingled, everywhere they cooperate in harmonious togetherness in this immortal masterpiece, end quote. She then proceeds to advocate for equal rights, implies women's right to vote, their desire for equal treatment under the law, equal opportunity in society, And education for all citizens of the nation. Her advocacy for women's rights, which is basically considered a critique of the actions of France's revolutionary government, and her not so subtle criticisms of Robespierre, marked her as an enemy of the Republic during the Reign of Terror. As a result, she's going to be guillotined on November 3rd, 1793. So my brief recommendation in this episode is a PBS video, uh, and it's called Egalité for All, and it's about Toussaint Louverture and the Haitian Revolution does a really good job of getting into some more detail about the particulars of the Haitian Revolution. And you can kind of learn a bit more how Spain and the British get tied up into it, as well as kind of seeing how what people in Saint-Domingue are advocating for, kind of how that sometimes runs counter to what certain factions within the French Revolution want to see happen with Haiti I think it just it makes it a little bit more complicated than I presented it here in the podcast other than the African Influences, so I definitely think that that's worth checking out, and I'll post the link in the blog as I usually do. But that's all I've got for now. This is, I think, the longest episode I've ever done, so hopefully it was informative and useful for you. Until next time, I will catch you then. Take care, everyone.